0: leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger more resilient more determined and more committed to excellence today i'm speaking with douglas robbins he is an author playwright and podcast host Douglas began his writing career at a young age when one of his teachers asked the class to write a poem. Well, he he got the writing bug and he grew up, attended college and held jobs in numerous fields from construction to insurance. Uh, The jobs changed, but his need to write and express himself remained a constant. He released his first novel The Reluctant Human, in 2012. He quickly followed it up with the novella Max Johnny and uh, a book of short stories titled Leaves Piled High. In 2019, he released Narakan, The Cloaked Deception. This uh, was his first book in a spiritual sci-fi series about the evolution of souls. He is currently working on the second and third books in the Narakan series series and i'm sorry am i saying that right Narakan? naricon <laughs> and another one of his books is love in a dying town which came out in 2021 it's the story of a single father struggling to raise his daughter in a dying factory town it's a story about love commitment and sacrifice Douglas recently wrote a play for the local community theater called "Someone Anonymous" about people feeling anonymous in their lives, but knowing there's more to them waiting to get out. And like I said, he's a podcast host. He hosts the Den of Discussion, a show that illuminates everyday heroes who are making a difference in our world. So, Doug, thank you so much for for coming on and agreeing to have this conversation with me and you know, sharing, sharing your story with the audience. Um, I'm I'm intrigued, you know, somebody that, uh, can write so many different, uh, books and, and just has this passion that you do. Well, first off, it's just awesome to talk to somebody that's passionate about something, you know, when that passion (laughs) comes out. So, uh, you know, thank you. Thank you for coming on.
1: Well, Dave, it's a, it's a pleasure being here, man. I'm excited to talk to you today. But, um, you know, it's funny. When I was a child, I was not much of a school student. I really didn't want anything to do with it. I felt like somebody was trying to pull the wool over my eyes as far as certain things I was supposed to learn. And I, even at that, that age, I kind of knew it was this homogenization of thought, of intellect, that we're all supposed to believe the same things and want the same things but there was something inherent within me. I don't know where it came from, some other world. I don't know, some other life um, that kind of saw through that. And I didn't know how to express that. My parents were good people, but kind of neglectful and not encouraging in that way. Uh, And I felt like as a child was really rejected uh, a lot. And then I ended up parenting myself and Uh, ended up in some some bad places because of that but there was always that idea to express that information that needed to come out and I would love to tell people oh I was a huge reader when I was a child and I read 15 books a week and no I wasn't (laughs) Uh, I loved being outside I loved being in nature and playing in and just sort of being in that natural world and that was sort of more of the church for me, if you will, or, or the place really to grow because school and all these institutions we were supposed to be indoctrinated into are all man made. But nature, we are from. Humanity is from nature. Uh, and so I always felt the best there. Uh, there's no judgment in nature, there's acceptance in nature. That's where growth is. Um, so even as a child, I had this information in me and it was all about expression. It was never about writing per se. It was just ideas that were sort of lingering around my psyche. Um, And it took a long time to understand that this is something I needed to get out. So when that teacher asked us to write a poem, a silly little poem, I remember uh, writing the opening lines. It was something like Religion is the lifelong betrayal. All you do is put a lot of money in the mail or something like that, which <laughs> uh, you know, just this silly thing. But, you know, my father liked it and he never cared about any of that stuff I had done. And the teacher even liked it. He got a kick out of it. So I was like, huh, there's something to this. There's a power in this. And I've heard of other people. I remember Neil Peart, the drummer of Rush, had always said something similar that he never felt that he was anyone in life, but when he was behind that drum kit, that's where his power was, that's where his strength was. Uh, and I felt something similar in words that was starting to percolate in my life.
0: Since we're talking about your childhood, where were you born and raised?
1: Uh, just outside of New York City. So it was a town called New Rochelle, sort of a suburb, you know, but large, it's probably 80,000, you know, people lived there at the time and just connected to all these other suburbs. Um, and it was a very different time than now. Back then, schools were really just production lines. You know, the big classes, 35 kids in a class, um, you know, fights and and whatever. So it wasn't about honing the individual or something along those lines. It was simply get them in, get them out, um, you know, I remember the junior high, what they used to refer to as junior high was basically like a prison. I mean, it had like bars on the window and, you know, like just not a good, you, you didn't feel like, Ooh, I'm growing here. It was no like, Hey, get to class, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, shut up and get to class. Yeah. So uh, that's kind of where I grew up and, and, you know, started going to bars when I was a kid and just, you know, was, was wayward in every which way, but, you know, kind of rejected um society and all that and i was going to bars when i was 14 years old and um a couple blocks from the house and it was a weird time i you know i think the parents had learned maybe hands off because their generation or, or their parents were from the depression so it was so um, restrictive probably and the opposite happened and
0: there probably should have been a little more boundaries a few more boundaries so <laughs> uh, what did, uh, what did your mom and dad do for work?
1: Yeah, they were both educated. I mean, you know, my, my um, father almost had his PhD in history or public administration and then stopped it for whatever reason. He worked at Queens College for a number of years as a VP. My mother actually had a, a master's degree in speech pathology um, from both, I think, went to NYU. I mean, both educated. Uh, she, you know, she even worked, with jfk's father joe kennedy when he had had a stroke um so i learned this later like she had lived with them for several months and uh he was supposedly a real bastard as far as you know patting women on the behinds and <laughs> happened to her as well but so they were both very educated and then she had a business later on but she loved singing and uh theater and probably gave that up for us um I don't know how deep that regret ran, but she had died when she was 53, but, um, so they were educated, but I'm not sure where the parenting skills were, but you know, like with anything, you bring your baggage with you, you bring your shortcomings with you. Uh, and that's how you, you live in the world,
0: you know, you, you, uh, you have siblings.
1: Yes, sir. Yeah. I have an older, uh, sister.
0: So, so, so you're the baby, something like that. Uh, So I bet you she got, all the
1: strictness huh she got more and and i wondered i've had this conversation with her she also thinks because she was a girl or female that they kind of paid more attention to her growth in some way like oh the boy will take care of himself it's a a man's world (laughs) kind of thing um but uh yeah she is the opposite of of me in a way like when i was a child i was very shy very quiet and we just sort of like sit in the corner, like, hey, I'm over here kind of thing. If you want to pay attention, to me over here. And she was the loud one, demanding and obstinate and in your face. And my father even named her mouth because she was so <laughs> loud about everything.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. What did you go to school for? When you, when you graduated high school, you went, got your degree. What did you go to school for? And where did you go?
1: That's a loaded question, Dave. Uh, you don't know that it's loaded, but it's loaded. Um, so, you know, I finished high school. I had never done well until about 11th grade. And then I was like, ah, should probably do a little better here. And then 12th, you know, cause I really, it was kind of politics in some ways you got to play the game. Uh, and so 12th, 12th grade, I did fine. And I applied to a school in Maine couple, just only two or three schools. I got into this one school, like kind of remote school on uh, very deep Maine. And, uh, ran into some trouble there I won't get into that now um, but I you know then my mother died so she died like within that year or so so I was kind of lost and my parents were supposed to move to Florida because she had been very ill for a number of years uh, she had had breast cancer um, you know had the wig and 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 going chemo and all those horrible things um, so she had died and then she died uh, just a few weeks before my parents were supposed to move to Florida. So I ended up moving to Florida with my father. uh, And then I just kind of needed to go, you know, and I started really becoming nomadic in many ways. And I went out to Washington state, went to school there for a little bit. Uh, I I, I met a girl. I, uh, we moved to Colorado. I went up to Michigan, uh, Florida, like all over the place. I ended up going to, I think, might be a record seven colleges in 10 years because i wasn't really trying to graduate Ugh. i was really just taking some classes and typically it was like a history or english base you know but it's really just you know i'd go to say eastern michigan university take some writing classes i go to you know somewhere else and take so it was never like "Ooh, let me finish my degree it was just hey i should probably take some classes and I think somewhere along the lines, um, I was like, "Yeah, you moron, you should probably get a degree here um, since you've been doing all this." So I eventually went uh, to SUNY Albany uh, uh, in New York and got my degree from from there. But it was a a long and winding road uh, to get there. Nice. Well, you peaked. My parents were not impressed, by the way.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, um. <clears throat> you mentioned that you got into a little bit of trouble in Maine. I got to hear this story, man, <laughs> if, if you're willing to share. No, no,
1: I'm happy to. I mean,
0: it's actually a book
1: I've 90% done. It's called Enter the Fire. And it's when you're kind of indoctrinated into the world, if you will. So I went there. I was a wise-ass from New York, sarcastic to the hilt, um, and had long hair, rock and roller, And went to this place and I didn't know much about it. Yeah, I just thought it's Maine, it's cool, it's remote, it's mountains and water and all that. Um, It was a very remote place, only about 1200 students went there. And Maine at that time, had something like a million people in the whole state. So very, very small, you know, I come from a much larger area. You know, the Bronx alone has millions of people compared to Maine, the whole state. Um, So very different culturally uh very conservative area and i happened to meet up with some other guys one other dude was a long hair he was even more of a wise ass than i was i at least had some common sense about it uh went to keep my mouth shut he did not um if you pushed him against the wall he's gonna you're gonna lose the battle the 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 verbal battle Uh, and then we had a couple other guys so we were all out of staters And the entire security and fraternity uh, was all run by one fraternity. So all of the Greek life or whatever, the RDs, the RAs, the security was all came from one fraternity. Um, And one guy was like a cop from another city. Another guy was an ex-IRA member from Ireland, Um, you know all kind of white bread guys and my ra was just a doughy white guy who like you know had no he was just a a puppy dog to anyone in charge you know um so no drinking on campus we were all underage but we were smarter than them or thought we were and so eventually like you know we They had they checked our bags a couple of times, never found anything because we'd finished it and discarded it elsewhere. But one night we go up and we're going to our rooms or to this one dude's room. So there was four of us and the two RDs and the RA were at the other end of the floor. And the one RD and this guy, Jeff, did not like each other. And so the rds come over and of course they're questioning us and all this and um the rd said something to jeff and he said well you you know some stupid thing like well you smell funny or whatever it is i don't even remember some childish thing and so that rd says this is the the cop from the other city he says but we'll see where you're living tomorrow tomorrow and we're like yeah whatever Uh, Like we thought it was just a joke because once again, Jeff had outsmarted him. So now the next day, the four (laughs) of us, now this is just a few weeks until the end of the semester. So we all get letters hand delivered to us from the Dean of Residential Life or whatever it is. The Dean of Residential Life is a born again christian 20 year military man who was new at the school so he wanted to make a name for himself so the so we were all called in to the residential life building and the dean and I had read up that night on the conduct code book and the residential life like agreement so i knew a little bit about it so we go into this building and the four of us in the lobby and we're called in individually. So I was brought back first. I said, let me go. Cause at least I've read this thing a little bit. So we go, Oh, I go in there and the Dean is in there with the two RDs. And obviously it's like a setup, right? So the Dean, you know, says, well, you know, I've been talking to these fine gentlemen about what happened, you know, last night, tell me what happened. So I tell him, and he literally starts laughing. <laughs> Why should I believe you when I have these two upstanding gentlemen just told me a different story altogether. And so he says, I want you moving out in 24 hours or whatever it is. And I'm like, you know, like in shock. Right. Right. We, we all have tests in the next week or two. I mean, it's like, you know, we, that's not even enough time to find a place, you know, could care less about us basically wanted us out. Um, so I was furious, probably cursing, you know, uh, and I eventually said like, well, we're going to appeal this. And so long story short, the other guys also had got the same issue. Um, the two guys, uh, Tim and Dave, who were just like, Sweet kids from Rhode Island who had never done a thing wrong in their life. They're kind of wrapped up in this. They're freaking out. Their parents are going to kill them, you know. Um, So I had to make a decision. Do I fight this on principle and say, we're being wronged here. There's injustice that needs to be addressed. Or do I just eat it and study and find a place? And my parents or um, yeah, my, my mother was still alive. My father, I called him. He basically hung up on me like, what the hell did you do this time? (laughs) You know? And I had to make this decision. Like, well, what do I do? We're kind of up against it. And I said, honestly, the principle is way more important than the grades. I didn't know where it was going to go. So me and this one guy who had absolutely nothing to do with it, but he had like a 0.42 GPA didn't really care. He he became my unofficial attorney, uh, you know, on campus, and we just started raising hell. We went to the um, president's house. went to, uh, spoke to the um, uh, the president's wife. You know, the v, uh, VP of Academic Affairs. We just started talking to everybody we could, uh, and saying, "Look, we're, we're appealing this." And the president even was kind enough to meet us. Uh, if I'm taking too long, I could probably shorten it. It's just such a kooky story. The president was like yeah i mean you know the dean said you got to move out you got to move out and i'm like what would you do if we didn't move out and he took that as like a challenge <laughs> because i'd have to call the cops and have you removed i was like oh good to know <laughs> um, Anyway, so all this craziness uh i think it bought us a few days though because the president's like let me talk to him and see what's going on so it bought us like 72 hours or something um And so, like I said, we started just raising a ruckus with with, um, uh, advisors and teachers and anybody that would listen, anyone that would lend us an ear. And the VP of academic affairs had been there for like 20 years. Very sweet man. And we told him our story and he said, you know, I expected you guys to come off as, you know, kind of incompetent or imbeciles and you're very articulate. So. I don't know the dean. I've you know he's just he's new here, but let me look into it a little bit. So okay, so now we get letters back from the dean saying who's going to be on the appeal committee. Nothing but people from this fraternity. Two teachers and one advisor, all connected to this fraternity. And so I wrote back and I said, no, that's a biased you know uh, a committee. And I, I said no to him, and I brought this to the the president, and I brought this to the VP of Academic Affairs, uh, and they're like, "Oh, that's curious." Um, and so, time goes by, and there's other some other nonsense that the dean tried to play, and um, of how bad and d- dangerous and and uh, disruptive we were, even though I, you know, we'd never gotten written up. Maybe Jeff got rid of ones for, for alcohol or something, but nothing else. And I did a survey on my place and uh, the dean submitted something during this appeal that was clearly written by one person because we were be like, Dave, myself, and I, you know, those kind of things. Like, oh, there's a lot of glaring issues. Nobody's going to write it like that. Um, anyway. So we go back and forth. I just basically abandoned class and just this is all that matters to me. And so we go to the appeal committee, we have our little debates, and the appeal committee, you know, hears us out. Um, so it was not the appeal committee that the dean wanted, actually, the VP of Academic Affairs became the appeal committee chair. Long story short, several days go by. Now it's like a, you know, finals week, and you know, I think I made it to one final or something. Um and we won unanimously. The dean loses it. He gets up and slams it on the table and starts screaming at the VP of academic affairs who had been there for 20 years. Says, I'm not going to accept these boys. They're trouble, blah, blah, blah. So the VP was this sweet guy, said, Peter, outside now, like raising his <laughs> voice. So <laughs> there you can hear them screaming in the hall. And they said, We're going to the president. Good. I spoke to him this morning. Let's go. The director of residential life said, Boys, I wish you luck. I'm washing my hands of this. I want nothing to do with this. Um, So it's just a crazy thing. Uh, You know, we were reinstated for everything. But, you know, by then, you know, we had kind of had to move out before the cops came and everything. Um, And it's funny because I went to speak with the president before I left. And he said, Because of you, we had to rewrite. The conduct code book because the dean did not have the authority to remove us from the dorms unless of campus emergency and obviously that was not a campus emergency so that's actually the somewhat condensed version i apologize if it took too long but you know this is something you know i know you talk a lot about in your shows leadership now what was what were they trying to lead What what were they trying to attempt right they were subjugating justice they had their own agendas because their little bruised egos got hurt and they wanted to, to make uh, you know, an example of us. Right. Well, we, if we had rolled over, they would have, and they would have been, you know, um, uh, galvanized to do it. And they weren't. And and I spoke to the president and i really should have princip- president. And I, sh- I mean, you know, I, I failed half the classes or 80%, you know, And I should have said, look, dude, like give us our money back or give us better grades or something. But I didn't have the the smarts to do that. But, you know, it's one of those times in life where you have to make a decision of what is most important here. And my soul was most important.
0: So you leave Maine. Yeah. You move to Florida. I, I imagine you started doing construction or something. you 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 did a bunch of stuff
1: well i went to florida so my mother died i went back to new york my mother died and then you know a couple months later we 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 went to florida went back to community college or started a community college and just I i had been a valet parker for a few years which was always a great gig you know easy money and you get to drive cars and um so i think at that point i was just doing that and trying to figure it out my mother had just died and You know, my father was old school and he, you know, got to bear the burden. So we never knew how sick she was. I mean, I knew she had cancer, but I didn't know how sick she was. So she actually only had had a few months to live that last time she went to the doctor. Well, because my father never told us this, we never knew that. Um, So that was a bit of an issue because he really took time away from us. Um, and really put a little bit of a wedge between us, uh, because again, he might not have known any better, but you know, you, you got to think it out a little bit, but so yeah, moved to Florida. And then I went after a few months, went to Washington state, um, which is incredible out there. I've, you've been out there, but
0: no, no, that's, uh, actually, <clears throat> the the pacific northwest yeah the the furthest north over on the west coast i've been is like northern california Mm -hmm. and it's beautiful yeah um so i would imagine washington state has got well
1: Well, the state's gorgeous the cascade mountains but it also has the san juan islands off and it's probably the best kept secret in the country hundreds and hundreds archipelagos stunning you take ferries all over to all these islands some don't have any um um any cars etc allowed on the islands some are just remote but there are whales going through there eagles flying overhead uh you know i mean the east coast has been around for 400 plus years well the west coast has really only been around for 100 150 years so it's very different it's not as built up as the east and isn't as decrepit as some of the east as far as old industry dying um, so it is a very special place out there um i would highly recommend it
0: nice where at in florida were you uh the jupiter to quest area oh yeah man i so i spent a lot of time in my youth in jupiter uh yeah i actually lived there for a while uh so yeah Yeah. that's that's great beach Yeah, Yeah. yeah yeah
1: so again after my mother you know I found comfort at the beach, you know, talk about nature once again, and na- the embrace of nature. Um, you know, I found great comfort at the water, at the beach with the open skies, um, uh, very peaceful there. And I would be there day and night, man. Uh, I would even sleep there sometimes at night. And, uh, again, it was just one of those places, almost like the bosom, almost like, you know, a mother's, um, you know, arms kind of thing. Uh, so that kind of helped me recover a bit.
0: At what point did you start writing your first book?
1: Well, another loaded question, Dave. Um and the reason why it's a loaded question is eventually so after I finished after I finished college uh, in SUNY Albany in Albany, New York, I said, you know, I'm going to move I'd started writing more poems and some little things. And I'd started a novel called Dawn. And it was about two college kids in love where the, the girl's mother is sick and dying of cancer. Sort of this family dynamic and tug of war. Like how do you love someone when someone very close to you is sick and dying? How do you celebrate and jo- be joyous whereas someone is one of your closest you know, people are dying? So I started writing this and had a couple hundred pages, moved to New York City. um, And. You know, I didn't know anything about writing, though, I didn't know about anything about the industry, I didn't have any connections, I didn't I I, something I had learned growing up is I did not know how to ask for help. I did not know how to adapt. Um, And so I moved to the city, you know, started, you know, partying again and sent this book out to a, a few agents etc and excuse me it didn't go anywhere you know sent out to five agents or something i had no idea what they wanted or not and uh, again didn't really know how to follow up or join things or take classes or anything so the book basically died on the vine even though i had all these things coming to me about it i no longer i just didn't know how to step forward i didn't know how to say hey wait a moment don't give up but I didn't have that muscle at that time. And so I did give up. I I mean, I, you know, I just, I said, I don't know how to do it. I don't, nobody's here to guide me. Um, no one's here to say, Hey, you know, hold my hand. Let me show you the way kind of thing. Um, and it breaks my heart to even admit it because it's, it's still a pain that I carry. Um, but this beautiful story, you know, uh, fell by the wayside. And I was like, I don't want to hear it. I'm not a writer. I can't make it happen. You know, um, And so I was in a very dark place for a number of years because of that very dark place. Um, Because, you know, if you give up what you love and who you are, the part of you that you love, what are you left with? You're left with emptiness and you're left with, okay, if this dream or this person I am isn't true, well, then you have a million choices. I could be a lawyer, I could be a foot doctor, I could, you know, and they're all wrong right because it isn't who you are and so it took me a number of years to for the writing to come back to me um and it was very dark initially um and that's probably what the reluctant his human is is sort of a purging uh it's philosophical but it's also similar to it's that reluctant human it's similar somewhat similar to the someone anonymous play in that most people feel like there's someone more to them. There's something more to them. And they're living these roles and playing these roles. And I got this job and I got this thing and I got to pay the bills. And, I get, and it's just these roles we insert into, right? And it's But it's not our truth. It's just these things we got to do. And, and there's a line, I'm a big uh, prog rock fan. So I like Jethro Tull a lot. And so they have a song that starts with skating away on the thin ice of the new day. And the opening lines are so profound. And it is that born to humanity, sold to society. Because that's really what happens is humanity is this broad, expanding thing, the spirit, you know, whatever you want to call. And then you're sold into these ideas and ideologies of institutions of I have to be this and want this and of things you now get smaller to adhere to. Uh, you know, jobs aren't asking for you. Who's your true self? Who are you really? Jobs don't care about that. They can do the job. Shut up and do the job. You know, that's what they hired you for. Great. Um, so anyway, the reluctant human was really about that part of us that maybe we shun sometimes because it's so broad and powerful. We don't always know how to how to honor it, and so that's kind of the main character. Um, you know, is that guy because he's made some mistakes. So it's about regrets and how do you heal from them and how do you overcome them and get back on track to a life of purpose, if you will. So that's kind of how I started getting back to writing. You know, if you lose something, it comes back to you. It's yours. Uh, I think that's how writing kind of uh, found me again.
0: You started talking about self and, and purpose. Um, i i I was just working on something i was uh gonna share it yeah um so one of the things that i mention in in my book is um the the Oracle at Delphi, uh, you know, in in the temple there. There's all these pillars, columns, and engraved on. I, I believe there's uh, 68 maxims that uh, are attributed to the Oracle at Delphi. The number one maxim that is engraved at the top of the main uh i don't know what the entryway is called but it's going into the temple the most prominent column at the top of that is engraved know thyself Mm. and you find it in uh, some form and in a lot of philosophies how important it is to to know yourself
1: yeah
0: who who you are and and so i talk a little bit about it in my book and um i was i just had a conversation with somebody where we were talking about buddhism and uh and taoism and and i had pulled out my copy of the tao te ching Mm -hmm. and uh i don't know what they're called in this uh Bursts or some I don't know, yeah, <laughs> but thirty three is one who knows others is clever, but one who knows himself is enlightened. And you know I know it's something simple, and but I, I talk about it quite a bit because when I left the fire service, spent twenty three years working in the fire department, And when I left, I wasn't ready to leave, but it was time for me to go. I experienced this identity crisis because for the bulk of my adult life, that's how I identified when people asked, you know, like when you get introduced to somebody, I'm Dave. And they're like, Oh, what do you do, Dave? Yeah. Talk about the fire department. Right. That's my identity. Yeah. Well, when I left the fire service that's no longer my identity right like it, and so I had to dig pretty deep and um I I want to say that they're well shit man still to this day there are days where I'm like man who, who the fuck am I you know right. like, and yeah. and I've I've interviewed monks I've you know uh buddhist monks and um you know individuals that have done retreats and and stayed in monasteries and like really you know dove deep and th- the the idea is to really be able to know who you are at the core like what you know what yeah. Is your purpose all yeah. this so yeah. i i said all of that to ask you this i feel like through your writing you've kind of had this you know existential experience where yeah. you're digging into who you are and what does this mean what does that mean who am i that kind of thing have you come to any conclusions <laughs> yes, I have the meaningful life, meaningful right over
1: here. Um <laughs> meaning of life. Oh, can't share it with you. Uh well, I was curious because I used to be monkish. Like I would really isolate myself in the woods and little places and not have much of a social life and you know, do martial arts for hours and hours a day and uh just kind of have some basic, you know, uh means making making a few bucks and studying zen and buddhism and taoism um so i understand that life that monistic in a sense life to to a point that austere life um i never was a monk but you know there are so many pieces to us and it's very confusing at times because we have this broader self that's like, yes, you can do all this in this world. that's like purity. Right? when you think of the future, there's just purity. there's no obstacles. Yes, you can accomplish all these things. But the future is filled with emotions and other things and other people and other things happening and unpredictable things. So you have that, this sort of broader self, and then you have that sometimes smaller self that maybe was injured and uh, not so confident. and I don't know how to do that, and I'm scared over here, and uh, I'm supposed to be a strong, tough guy, but i'm 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 unsure. I'm undeveloped over here. Um, so I don't think there is one piece to us. You know you have the 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 line of you know the spiritual life in the physical body or, or whatever. And that spiritual life is trying to be fulfilled, but you have emotions in the physical body. And that's what keeps you trapped quite often. It's that sense of self, of the limiting beliefs, of the struggles, of I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not connected, um, or I can't get there, or whatever it is, I've been hurt, you know, whatever it might be, um, and we make mistakes. We all make choices, often based upon those emotional reactions we have, and so something I come back to is, you know, we're often talking about IQ, or well, the IQ is very smart, or this person is very smart. Um, And that's what we kind of hone in school, right? Intellect and regurgitation and critical thinking, hopefully um, not as critical as it should be, Um, but really just information, right? It's an information-based education system. However, it is the EQ, the uh, emotional quotient, that really guides your life and guides on how the decisions you make when you're in a situation that's unpredictable, it's those emotions are going to say, pull back, run, fight or flight, or I know how to handle this because I'm resilient and I, you know, I'm strong and you know, So you have these different facets of who we are. Um, and that's really the challenge when we often feel like I should be over there, but I'm over here. Well, how do you resolve that, right? It's not easy because now you're talking about you have energy that's just saying I should be over there. That's flowing energy. That's purity, spirit, imagination, whatever you want to call it. But then you have the physical of, yeah, I really like to uh to buy a truck or do or go on a trip or whatever. I'd like to get out of this job. Yeah, but I need to pay the bills. And so it's sort of a conflict, right? Of, of within ourselves, there are conflict or contrarian ideas. You know, our consciousness. You have the consciousness of who we are, the sense of self, what we're here to accomplish, that purposeful drive of what do we want to do here? But then you have that emotional baggage of choices, regrets, things that maybe you haven't developed or dealt with. You know, a lot of people are on autopilot. They're not dealing with their shit. They're not dealing with these sort of unexamined triggers that sets them off. That they just, you know, if you look at everybody, everyone's angry about everything right now, right? Because social media feeds off of that. That's what news feeds off of. They don't care so much about the actual facts, a lot of things. They're feeding off of your fears and divisiveness and your your, your story that you want in the world. Guns or not guns or whatever it might be. And conspiracies or, or whatever it is. And so it's very hard to reconcile because we aren't monks you know i've i've seen things about monks that they're the happiest people on the planet well they're the happiest people on the planet because they're not dealing with constant stress you know of the world of the news of the bills of of kids yelling things at you know the more you put on the plate the more stress you're going to have and then my goodness you look at social media and the news and It's easy to feel powerless. It's easy to feel small and insignificant and powerless. And that's why we often have to step back from these things, because they're not feeding our best selves. They're not feeding our souls, our spirits. They're not healing us emotionally. Uh, And so, you know, we often hear what we put into our bodies, right? Got to put, you got to eat good. You are what you eat. Well, you're also are what you think. You're also are what you intake. So if we're reading a lot of crap and how this side is bad and that side is bad and blah, 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 well, that doesn't help you. It just feeds your anger. It feeds your emotions. It doesn't feed love. It doesn't feed a broadness. It doesn't feed, you know, embrace. It It feeds the disease within you. Because this is now what pits people against each other. It's okay. You can want guns or you cannot want guns. But use your intellect, use create, uh, you know, uh, um, um, critical thinking, try to understand the subjects a little deeper than just, oh, you want to take my guns away or you don't want to take my, you know. It's easy to kind of jump on this bandwagon. I interviewed a, a gentleman the other day and he's saying the problem with people is they suffer from the same thing they suffered 200,000 years ago. And that is group thinking. It's very easy to just get lumped in Okay, everyone is group thinking. We have uh, my sister-in-law is here with her two dogs. The one dog, they just jump all over everything. My dog doesn't jump on anything. Doesn't typically bark. Their dog, her dog barks constantly. Well, the last few days, our dog has been barking a lot more. Every, every time the other dog barks, he starts barking. Um, he wants to jump on the couch like the other dogs. No, get off the couch. And so it's very easy because it's harder to think. It's easier to just say, yeah, yeah, you're right. I take whatever crap you tell me and I, I, I think exactly the same. And, and that's kind of where we started this. You asked me, you know, about, you know, when I grew up and I, and I said at that time, that's what was feed, being fed. Everyone's supposed to think the same and want the same. And when you become that individual, when you honor who you truly are, you are willing to step out from that group and say, hey, I disagree. And this is why I disagree. And I still respect you. And, you know, like, you can do you, you do me, I'll do me. But that's the challenge is saying, hey, I'm going to be me. Because we ultimately should have billions and billions of individuals. Now we all have similar needs, wants, et cetera. We are all interconnected in this global life. Um, that could be a whole nother topic, but it's really just about being an individual and honoring yourself. And, and that's, that's where you grow. That's where you stand tallest. That's when you say, I'm living my best self. It's not because Betsy down the street approves of me. And that's the hardest thing for us is judgment. We take judgment from parents, from associates, from coworkers, from friends, family, everybody else. And then we add two and go, yeah, I'm not good enough because that's what that person said. <laughs> but none of this is truth. And so these are the things we have to keep digging out Sometimes with a jackhammer, sometimes with a shovel, but, you know, giving ourselves the space, giving ourselves the love and saying, Hey, you know, I, I want to feel better there. I have all this pain in this area. Something happens and it triggers me. And I feel, you feel horrible. The person over there that triggered it doesn't feel horrible. You feel horrible because you're carrying all this crap. Well, that's crap. You have to unpack and heal. Because you don't want to carry it the rest of your life. And and I think the less or the more we unpack, the truer we get to our essences, the lighter we become, and the more fulfilled we we get to to live this
0: life. Writing is such a powerful tool in so many different ways, isn't it? Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. Um.
1: Because words, what do you got, man? You have words. What did Martin Luther King Jr. have? Words, words and deeds. And, you know, if if I may go on another tantrum for a second.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So you have the issue with Ukraine right now. Very serious issue. You have Putin uh, bombing a sovereign nation because he wants to take it back like he did with Georgia and, and other places. Well, Zelensky has stepped up and he's become the symbol, global symbol. But what he has done is shown people the best of what they can be. And he has shown America who the hell we claim to be. And to me, it's like you cannot let him fall. You cannot let his family fall. And you cannot le- let Ukraine fall. Because if you fast forward five years, 10 years, what's going to happen then? Putin's going to have more power. Oh, he's got nuclear war nuclear bombs well he'll always have that he's the bully with the big stick well we have big sticks too a lot of people do i'm not i not saying anybody should be using nuclear uh weapons what i'm saying is you cannot allow tyranny to spread if our convictions are our convictions they are meaningless without deeds
0: amen Man. Thank you so much. This has been a, a great conversation. I, uh, pretty freaking cool, man. Um, I, I really wasn't sure where the conversation was going to go. <laughs> and, but yeah, man, really cool. Thank you for sharing your perspective and your story and your wisdom. Really appreciate it, man.
1: David, it's a pleasure, man. And this, I feel like people look to leaders to get back to it, to change the world, to politicians and whomever, Elon Musk, whatever it is. But that's typically not how the world changes. The world changes by you and me and other people saying, hey, let's shine a light on this and do something about it. So it always starts with grassroots by people saying, hey, no. We deserve better and we're going to demand better and and take actions to be better. So such a pleasure to speak with you in this forum, man.
0: Yeah, likewise, likewise. Now, for those listening that would like to connect with you, follow you, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Um, Always a good question. Thank you. So uh, my website is DouglasRobbinsAuthor.com. If you sign up with your little email, you get a free story but it has my podcast, it has the books, it has, you know, kind of what I'm all about. I'm always about the human condition, moving forward, you know, living sort of a just life. And that's really what a lot of the characters are that I write about. Um, You can also follow me, probably easiest is Facebook, uh, DouglasRobbinsAuthor.com. I'm on Amazon, you know. Um, But yeah, I mean, wherever I, they can find me uh, i'm on twitter but you know I, I'm, I'm on these things but i don't really do much with them half the time twitter douglas robbins Four, maybe i'm on instagram under the den of discussion um but if you get onto the website you and and sign up that then you get out my you'll get my um updates and emails and podcasts and all that stuff so nice
0: and who doesn't want free stories dave yeah everybody
1: everyone wants free stuff <laughs>
0: Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much. I'll, I'll have uh, a link to your website in the show notes. And, you know, so everybody listening that wants to check you out, they can just click on the link. So
1: thank you, my friend. It's been a pleasure.
0: Yes, sir. Likewise. Be well. Thank you for listening to this episode of from embers to excellence, please like, and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform And visit HollenbachLeadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them. And the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.